Welcome to Career Catalyst, a podcast that focuses on the gap between career planning and job searching advice. There are plenty of great sources for understanding how to handle job interviews, create resumes, or how to network. But this podcast focuses on the important topic of what people actually do and what paths they have taken in their career journeys. On the next episode, my guest has a career story that ranges running tech startups, grinding at IBM, owning pizza franchises, and writing a book. His name is Eric Severinghaus, and he talks about the highs and lows of his journey and why those life lessons propelled him to the top of Mount Everest. Eric has his first book coming out in May called Scale Your Everest, How to Be a Resilient Entrepreneur, and he shares some of the inspiration for writing the book in our discussion. He also talks about how he used his experience at IBM to polish his business skills and apply it to other companies he would start later in his career. The discussion includes great insights about the difficulties and hardships of being an entrepreneur and how to overcome some of the most difficult moments. Whether you're looking to start your own company or just contemplating your next steps in your career, Eric shares strong insights and perspectives about why being resilient can lead to success in any type of career journey. Remember, if you like this show, please give it some love, rate it, share it, follow it, and tell your friends. I hope you enjoy the conversation because I certainly enjoyed having it. All right, welcome to today's episode. I've got a fantastic guest and someone who I think is going to have some really great insight about career journey that many people might consider atypical, but extremely successful. So I've got Eric Severinghaus on the show today. Welcome, Eric. Well, thanks, Todd. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my very weird and non-traditional career path. Very successful, though. So do you want to just start real quick who you are, what you're doing now, where you're at? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the executive vice president in charge of business development, alliances and partnerships at a company called Connexium. Connexium is a gross stage technology company headquartered and founded in Canada, out of Vancouver, actually, oh. but with executive offices uh, in, in, in sort of a, a growth area in Chicago, which is where I live with my wife and daughter. I, I guess my primary job is that. I've got a side gig as an author, so I've got a new book coming out here very soon about entrepreneurship, and, and a, a fair bit of my career has been on the entrepreneurial side. So I've, I've done big companies like IBM. I've done pure startups, uh, obviously, where you and I got to know each other, Todd, as well as a variety of other kind of pure startups. Uh, and then I've done sort of growth stage companies and, and stuff in between as well. Very cool. Yeah. And we're going to get into all that. And, and I, I should say now, I think you're the first, officially the first guest to have a book on my show. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to, to be on and be able to talk about it among yeah. other things. Yeah, sure. All right. So I know, like you said, you've had a career that's been startups and big companies and, but let's go back and kind of go to where you started out. Right. So you, you're a Chapel Hill grad, right? North University of North Carolina. That's exactly right. Go Tar Heels. So you're at Chapel Hill. I mean, you, you grew up in North Carolina. I mean, I know this, but you grew up in North Carolina. Is that why you wound up at Chapel Hill? Or is there some other reason why you chose uh, UNC Chapel Hill? You know, I, I grew up in Raleigh and I was looking at Chapel Hill. I'm embarrassed to say that my safety school was Duke. And so that, that would have been one of my backup options. <laughs> uh, I was also thinking about Stanford. I was thinking about MIT. I wanted a school that seemed like it was going to be a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but also one that had a great computer science program. And it, at the time, I was a self-taught open source computer programmer, mm -hmm. really big in kind of the world of Linux and open source. And Chapel Hill was um, one of the places that was actually on sort of the leading edge of open source programming. And so that was one of the things that really attracted me there. And then also I liked the fact that it was a big school and it seemed like it would be a good time and, and a bunch of those kinds of things. And I found all of that to be true. Wow. And I mean, again, not to date either one of us here because we're about the same age, but you're, no, you're making this choice right as like internet is booming in the mid late nineties, right? No, right as it all melted down. So, so in oh. high school, so I graduated high school in 2000. Okay. So I, I, in 1999, I had a couple of offers. I was thinking about, I, I desperately wanted a job at Red Hat Software, but mm -hmm. I, I never got a job offer from Red Hat Software. I was very, and, and that was based in Durham, right around the corner. 
I was very much contemplating a couple of offers I had to drive out to California and start enjoying the crazy gold rush that was happening out there, you know, right around 1999. And, and I thought, why even bother going to college? I was a, a pretty well-recognized and reasonably successful computer programmer at the time. And I said, you know, why bother going to school? Why not just drive out West? And, uh, you know, I got to my dorm room in 2000. And by that point, the entire internet and, and you know, dot-com ecosystem is just totally in complete meltdown. And I remember sitting in my dorm room and thinking, thank God I decided to come here <laughs> rather than go out there and join all the craziness out in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So you made the choice to go to school, right? Which at the time, I mean, that, that was probably a tough choice in its own right. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it was a tough choice to go. And it was always a tough choice to stay because I I started like 10 different companies. I was part of founding 10 different companies while I was an undergrad. I, I remember when I got halfway through my senior year, I remember my mom looking at me and saying, wow, I can't believe you're going to actually make it through college. She was absolutely convinced that I was going to drop out. You know, it, basically every semester I had a new business idea and she was convinced that I was going to drop out and, and go do that full time. I was fortunate though, North, North Carolina was, um, was fairly liberal around allowing me to do independent studies. And so I, I had a lot mm. of opportunity to build companies and work closely with professors. And, and so I would integrate my entrepreneurial ambitions with the, the various different studies that I was doing at the business school. And, and I was able to kind of pull it together in a way that worked really well for me. Wow. So you did you graduate with computer science or did you graduate with business? No, I, I'm, I was an opinionated and ornery computer science kid who didn't <laughs> like the way that North Carolina taught computer science at the time. Mm. And so I got in a couple fights with a couple professors and uh, decided that I would continue to do computer programming and, and systems engineering as a profession. So that was my primary job and it was how I was making the money to put myself through school. Mm. And it, it, I had expected to double major in computer science and business. And again, just kind of being ornery and opinionated, I decided to drop the computer science major out of peak and uh, focused completely on the business side of the education. Got it. And, and I know this well, business, business schools are great places for ornery and opinionated people. <laughs> So, you know, you've gotten through school, but this is also when you had one of your first big kind of moments, uh, you know, with a business that exited, correct? If I, if I recall correctly? Yeah, well, it, it would take a while to exit, but I started in some way, shape or form. I helped start probably 10 different businesses while I was at North Carolina. While the entire dot-com world was melting down and there was no venture capital to be had anywhere, we decided that we were going to keep starting tech startups. Um, I, I guess we were just stubborn, right? We weren't, we weren't really reading the environment, but we just said, screw it. I don't care if everybody else thinks this is a bad idea. I still want to go do this. Like I, I love the technology. I loved building this stuff. And, and so we were really building what I would, you know, what, what would now be called software as a service platforms at, at time. They were just internet websites. Um, interestingly, at one point, my friend and I sat down and, and we'd had a few drinks and we decided to rank out of the 10 companies that we were working on, which ones we thought would be most successful to least successful, right? One through 10. And, and so the one that we had dead last on that list uh, for a variety of reasons was a company called IntelliContact, uh, what would later become called iContact. And it was an email service platform. And we were really one of the first email service platforms to exist in the world. Right around about a year after we decided it wasn't going anywhere and we kept working on it because we were working on a bunch of different things. The company really started to grow. Uh, I left in 2004 when I graduated mm -hmm. college um, to go start a, a, a career at IBM. And you could start to see that this thing was probably going to take off and be really successful. And, um, the, you know, so, so I, I, I kind of had this, this decision point of do I remain full-time in Chapel Hill? Uh, do I remain full-time helping build out iContact, which would later go and, and we exited for about $180 million? Do I keep doing that or, or do I go, you know, take a more traditional kind of getting out of college job? Yep. Okay. So you've got these businesses still kind of happening in North Carolina, but then you go off to IBM. 
That's exactly right. I went and decided to become part of the machine at IBM. And, and so I, I started in a consulting role at Big Blue. Got it. All right. So this is going to be tricky for me because it's not, it's certainly not linear. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, 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 I think one of the interesting things about it is it's, it's very, it's very weird. I, I kind of go back and forth a lot. Got it. So do you want to go down, do you want to talk a little bit about, about the IBM experience and then come back? Probably going down the path of IBM, I, I, I think there are there are interesting kind of back and forth that happen throughout the way that that I think people don't talk about a lot, but that are the real life decisions that people are trying to figure out how to make. So how did you? I mean, that's a great, you know, like how did you make that decision? What was the what were the criteria? For me, it was two things. Number one, I loved Chapel Hill. I loved every minute I spent there. It was starting to feel small to me. And I was ready to get out of Chapel Hill and I was ready to go see the world. The other piece of it, so a lot of it was personal. The other piece of it mm -hmm. was that I had built so many different startups and I had tried so many different things. And I felt like I was making it all up as I went along and I was trying to do everything with duct tape and bailing wire. I wanted to understand how do big professional companies do business I kind of had this idea in my mind uh, and, and what I realized was I was a pretty good technologist. I was pretty good at building software and building solutions, but I kept failing at bringing them to market and figuring out how to sell them and generate consistent revenue. I didn't feel like I needed to learn the, how do you develop a product side? I felt like I needed to learn more. How do you consistently generate revenue and make money off of products? And and that commercialization side was what I felt like uh, it, it would be nice to learn from somebody who had done it well. And, you know, it, it felt like IBM was a good place to learn that skill. Yeah. Again, that's an impressive thing to go through as a 21, 22 year old, right? I mean, that that is not an easy process because a lot of people probably don't even know what they would consider their strengths and weaknesses outside of maybe some of the core personality things are familiar with. But when you actually think about applying it to the business world, you certainly benefited probably from running these companies because you were in it, right? Versus going through the kind of theory of it in a class. Well, that, that, that's exactly right. And that's what I was going to say. Like your strengths and weaknesses, or at least mine, became far more apparent when I got out of the classroom and into the real world setting. Wow. So you're at IBM, you're in a consulting role. How many years did you stick with IBM? I ended up staying there six years and I actually resigned, I think four times in those six years <laughs> for the final one that finally stuck. Got it. And they keep bringing you back. So you resigned. They keep bringing me back. I, I, um, and I will tell you, I learned so much at IBM. It was such a great stop on my career path. And, and here I am doing software validation for the Department of Education, you know, on this long-term consulting gig for IBM. Six months in, I was done. I had it. So I, I called up the guy that had recruited me to IBM, an, an amazing Chapel Hill grad. Uh, and I called him up and, and said, Bill, I can't do this anymore. I got to quit. And, and he said, he said, what are you going to go do? And I said, I don't know, but not this. Like, I, this is just not what I want to do with my life. And he said, all right, what if I can go find you more interesting projects and, and more interesting, um, you know, things to do? What he opened my eyes to was the importance of developing mentors internally within IBM. And, and he pointed out to me a few people around IBM who had reputations of taking young, talented people and coaching them and mentoring them and putting in them in positions where they could succeed. And so I, I was just, um, I was just brutal. I mean, I was like knocking on a couple of these guys' doors every day and saying, you've got to bring me over into this group. I want to go do this stuff. I want to be working on more interesting things. Here's what I can bring. And, um, you know, finally got a couple of opportunities to go do that. And then ended up learning a ton and getting to do a bunch of really entrepreneurial things, helping build new business units within IBM. So I was, I was helping them build what was a precursor to the entire cloud strategy. You know, at the time, everything was sort of on-premise and, and I, you know, I got a patent in some of this stuff and, and I'm helping build this really interesting technology that would end up becoming cloud computing. 
Uh, and, and then I also got to see firsthand the insanity of, of kind of big companies because while we were getting some adoption and you could very much see that, that like technically this was going to be the future of computing, we also missed a couple of our sales numbers. And so IBM ended up shutting down these groups and saying, we no longer want to invest in this because we don't think this cloud thing is, is really going to be meaningful. And that was in like 2006, 2007. Yeah. Okay. And I should have asked this, this is more of just a kind of placement, but you, you leave Chapel Hill, you, you went to IBM. Are you living, where are you living at, the, at this point? Just So I was actually a vagabond. I was a high-class vagabond for about two <laughs> years. I, um, I moved to, to DC and I was briefly in DC. And then I started traveling. And so I was on the road five days a week and I actually gave up my apartment and um, literally bought a storage unit and a post office box for my mail to be delivered in, in Northern Virginia and uh, actually did not have a home address for a couple wow. of years. That's wow. And that's pre Airbnb too, right? Like that's. Oh yeah. No, I was, I was living out of hotels, but, but you know, IBM had me on the road. So I was traveling to a client site five days yeah. a week. And then I could basically pick anywhere I wanted to go and buy a plane ticket. So I would just call my old buddies from college and figure out who was having a fun party or where it seemed like there was a good concert or a good sporting event. And I would, I would fly to whatever city I felt like going to, and I would either sleep on somebody's couch or I was racking up enough Hilton points that, uh, you know, I would, I would just get a room on points and then I'd go back to the client site the next week. <laughs> that is awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah. And I mean, not, in a, I mean, not alone talk about courage and conviction. I mean, just to have that kind of lifestyle to give yourself that freedom. That's, that's awesome. So, well, I'll, I'll tell you for me, it was that I wanted to save as much money as I could. I wanted to put that rent money away because the other thing that, that I was very intentional about at IBM was making sure that I was still learning, but also making sure that I didn't get hooked on the money yeah. and I could walk away at any time. Got it. Yeah. That's great advice in its, in its own right. Um, so IBM, it polishes you up, right? Cause it does give you that big business kind of like process and exposure. And, you know, we'll come back to the mentors thing in a little bit, but you know, you get some mentors, you get exposure, but it also gives you that exposure to like the inefficiency or even the insanity of the big business. And if, if you are enterprising or you are entrepreneurial, it is a tough environment. I'm not just talking about IBM. I'm talking about any, you know, massive organization, right? Absolutely. So you're, you're, you you finally get a resignation over the finish line at IBM. What happens yep. after that? Yeah. So, so that was, I was about halfway through Kellogg. So I had gotten IBM to sponsor me to go back to Kellogg, uh, okay. to go to Kellogg business school. So I'm about halfway through Kellogg and while I'm at Kellogg, I am meeting all of these entrepreneurs in the Chicago scene. And this was, this was when being an entrepreneur was still kind of weird. And it was when, yeah. you know, you certainly did not have co-working spaces. All of these kinds of things just were not part of the world that we lived in. Uh, this was about 2010. But I disc but I, I started getting introduced through the Kellogg Entrepreneur Club. I started getting introduced to a bunch of different entrepreneurs around Chicago as I met them and I chatted with them and they were generous with their time and, and sort of meeting and answering questions. And, and I talked with them. What I realized was these are just my people. Like they're doing the things that I want to be doing. They're building the types of things that I want to be building. You know, I, I would get so much energy from interacting and talking about that kind of stuff. And then I'd go back to the day job of how do I hit my quota at IBM? And it just wasn't doing it for me. And so I started dabbling on the side. I, I, I teamed up with a couple buddies and we started a bunch of pizza franchises in Chicago. And so I started kind of dabbling on the side while I was continuing to work at IBM. And then at some point, even though IBM was sponsoring my MBA and me leaving meant that I had to pay them back for, you know, what, what would be, you know, over a hundred grand at some point, like halfway through that, um, you know, that experience at Kellogg, I just sort of realized that life was too short and that, um, that, that I needed to kind of go, go follow a different path. And so I, again, to your point, I finally got a resignation that stuck and decided to go, um, build a company called simple relevance that was focused around using machine learning 
to try to personalize digital marketing, which at the time was, was again, a very kind of revolutionary and, and weird thing to be, to be focused on. Yeah. So, okay. So, you, so you, you start Simple Relevance. Um, you've got a, you've got some pizza, pizza franchises on the side, you know, what's going on now? So I've basically taken all of that money that I saved up while I was at IBM over the years, as well as by this point, we had gotten some of the money out of iContact. So I, I'd been able to sell a little bit of my stock and, and we hadn't gotten a big exit yet, but, but we had an opportunity to sell a little bit of stock and I gotten a little bit of money out. And I basically took it all and wagered it on a couple of these startup bets. And, and one of them was, uh, again, teaming with a couple of friends and getting what became seven Papa John's pizza franchises in Chicago off the ground. And then the other one was funding this startup company, Simple Relevance, that, you know, the first hundred, hundred and fifty thousand of that, you know, was was my life savings. I mean, it was everything I had. Um, and then uh, you know, raised a little bit of money from friends and family, raised about a quarter of a million dollars uh from friends and family, and then got or raised about a hundred thousand, got some more venture capital on top of that. And so, you know, that's the period of my life where Money is going out the door every time I feel like I wake up. I feel like every day I am poorer and I'm very excited about the opportunity of what, what I'm working on building. I'm very excited about the pizza side of it. I'm very excited about the startup side of it. I'm very excited about the future. And, and you know, for uh, one of my blessings and curses is I'm just a, a, a perennial optimist. And so I'm very excited about like the future of, of what it feels like I'm building. I feel very fulfilled and I feel very fired up. But then at the same time, there's this, you know, very real life thing that's happening, which is every week, every month, I'm just feeling poorer and I'm feeling more and more stressed about the financial element of everything. One of my favorite vignettes during that time, looking back on it is, you know, I, I used to get, as you can imagine, a ton of pizza delivered. So, so I was calling all the time and I'm getting pizza delivered all the time. And, uh, you know, the, the, the delivery guy comes and, you know, I give him, uh, whatever for a tip and, and, you know, his eyes light up and he's excited and he says, thank you. And he leaves. What I realized in that moment is that that pizza driver felt richer for having gone to work that day. Like he made whatever money through tips and like he's leaving that day with more money in his pocket than he started it with. And it felt like it had been forever that I had actually had, since I had had more money in my pocket, I was working more hours than I could imagine. I mean, I was working my, myself almost literally to death and I just kept feeling poorer every day. And so that it was a, it was a, a really both interesting and frustrating time for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Eric, I, I don't want to get too personal on you, but you invited me to an event in Chicago right around this time. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget how this exchange happened, because to me, it, it kind of planted this really important perspective that, again, I had the luxury of watching it exchange. But I forget who you were talking to. I mean, it was it was like I mean, it was like J.B. Pritzker type of level person in Chicago. Um, and I'm not talking the you know, Governor J.B. Pritzker. I'm talking the the guy who's put a ton of effort into the entrepreneurial scene of Chicago. Right. And it was someone in that room and they came over to you and they said, you know, like, How, how's everything going? And it was like the typical start to a conversation. And then they, they like, they looked you in the eye and put their hand on your shoulder. Like, how are you doing? And you were like, you just, you were like, man, it's, I remember you saying it's been <laughs> tough. And you, you know, people talk about entrepreneurs and, and you said that it used to be weird and now they're cool and whatever it is. But there was something there where like, I realized like you can talk about entrepreneurs all you want, but until you are one, until you own your own business, until you're responsible for that money going out and how are you going to get the money to come back in, you don't know that stress, right? Like you just, you, the luxury of going to work every day. And I remember that was a moment I just from afar watching it happen. I always think about that. When that's, that's really interesting because... I have this perception of myself during that period of time as from an external perspective, being completely stoic and, and constantly positive and not letting anybody know the fact that it was really, really hard. 
and and so it's it's interesting actually to hear you say that. I I would not have thought that I would have allowed myself to even sort of hint at that at that vulnerability. And and so that's yeah. that's interesting. I think it was because the two individuals, you and this other person, I wish I could remember exactly who it was. They both they both knew what it, that vulnerability was, right? And you know, like it wasn't it wasn't like I said, it wasn't the typical like. Hey, how's everything going? And you're able to just kind of like, yeah, everything's great because you were killing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, but that that that, that I, that's yeah. I mean, and go ahead. The research bears that out. If if you look at um, a good friend of mine, Dr. Michael Freeman, has done a tremendous amount of research into the psychology of entrepreneurs, and what he's found is that entrepreneurs suffer from three twi- three times the rate of addiction and twice the rate of suicidality of as the general population. Wow. It is a very hard path that is made even more difficult by the fact that you very rarely feel like you can show or express that vulnerability and and let somebody know how it's really going. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of loneliness. There's a tremendous amount of isolation. Um, there's, there's all of these things that go part and parcel to that journey that are very rarely spoken of. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, that, ultimately is, is the reason that I wrote the book that I wrote. And, you know, we talk about getting personal. I mean, I get, I get very into, you know, the, the dark places where I, I do wonder if I want to continue. I, I do contemplate, you know, a couple of times just throwing myself off the balcony and, and hoping that this will all come to an end. Mm-hmm. And it, it's unfortunately stuff that almost every entrepreneur goes through that the research shows that it's very, very consistent through the journey and yet it's so rarely talked about and, and actually discussed. And there's so little sort of advice around it. And that's that's ultimately what inspired me to do the author side of, of you know, my my existence. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, man, that that I, I mean, in some ways, I don't even I, I don't know. You kind of I don't know what to say to that because that that is hard. Right. And that path that you chose and, 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 and like you said, the difficultness of of that or the degree of difficultness that, that comes with it. You didn't know about it, right? Like when you started on it, you just, you're, you know, let's start companies on SCO and, and then you're learning all these hard lessons along the way, you know? Yeah, the, you're exactly right. The, it, I, I joke oftentimes that I'm potentially the most overeducated entrepreneur there is in the world, right? I, I, <laughs> I, I got an undergraduate in entrepreneurship from Carolina. I got an MBA in entrepreneurship from Kellogg. I went through uh, CED, the Council for Entrepreneurial Development. Since I'm talking to a Tar Heel, I, I know you you may have run across CED over there in the North Carolina area. I went through their educational program. I went through TechStars, which is, you know, arguably the world's most prestigious uh, entrepreneurial accelerator. Mm-hmm. I went mm-hmm. through every class and thing that you could do. I've read every book. I watched every movie. I read every talk. And I was completely unprepared for the psychological toll that entrepreneurship took on me. And that's a, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big part of, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is help other people at least have a resource so that they can be better prepared. From a, from a, just a timeline standpoint, you're, you're kind of in this dark place. You've got simple relevance in, in, and I think you still have the pizza. You haven't sold the pizza uh, franchises yet. Do you want to kind of, you know, how did, how did that close? Like, how did that kind of come to an end? That whole chapter kind of came to to an end. Um, first thing that happened is we had the opportunity to sell the Papa John's franchises. And while they had grown in in revenue, we had never gotten to the operational efficiency that we need in order to um, in order to really make a profit. We we thought it was going to be cash flowing for us, and we ended up constantly having to put cash into it. And so when we got the opportunity to exit that and, and we had um, the three of us who had started as best friends, the business had taken its toll in some ways. And so we, for, for a variety of reasons, both personal as well as financial, uh, we decided to take the offer that we got and we sold the Papa John's franchises to a larger franchise roll up. And so that was kind of nice. It, it, it put some cash in the bank. It, got me a little bit of a win. It allowed me to kind of get out of something that was draining me an awful lot. I could put my full energy into simple relevance. And unfortunately, at that point in time, I had I had made a really bad decision around bringing on an employee 
who had uh, brought contracts into the business that we later determined to be fraudulent, as well as committed capital to the business, signed term sheets, given me routing numbers for money that was going to come into the business. You know, a million dollars literally was supposedly being wired into the business that just kept not showing Mm up. And I finally called my banker and uh, said, hey, by the way, be on the lookout because a million bucks should be coming into the bank today. Here's here's the routing number. Here's the Fed wire transfer number um, just so that you could track it. And I, I remember sitting there in, in, um, in, in the restaurant talking to him when he said, Eric, that, that wire transfer number isn't even the right number of digits. He said, are you sure this is real? Hmm. And the reality was that I wasn't. And it, it forced me, I went back and it forced me to really dig into what was happening. And what I realized was that Literally, what I thought was a fast growing, accelerating. We were looking at hiring. We had more money coming in. We had a couple big contracts signed. And what I realized was that it was fraudulent. And Hmm. I had to, not Hmm. only that, we were almost out of money. We were about out of cash in the bank. And I thought it was all fine because we had this new revenue coming in. We had this new investment coming in. We had this bridge capital coming in that was then, you know, combined with the revenue coming in was going to allow me to raise a nice big round of capital and, and go, you know, live the startup dream. And what I realized in that moment was that really, you know, I, I, I then had to go tell the board wow. that some of these things that I've been communicating actually weren't true. And uh, not only that, but we were we were pretty close to being completely out of capital. So, you know, at that time, I had about yeah, about 10, 12 people working for me at the business. You know, we had a number of customers and I had been personally uh, putting kind of the money that I had. I had been putting that money into bridging payroll as we were kind of finalizing, you know, this this round of equity coming in. And so all of that sort of evaporated. We were out of money. We had to figure out some way to to get out of the business. And I was hoping to do that in a way that we didn't have to lay everybody off. Uh, you know, everybody wouldn't lose their jobs. Our, our customers would not, you know, be left hanging. So ultimately, we were able to exit the business. And it wasn't it wasn't a huge exit, but we were able to find, you know, what, what we could then call a successful exit to a marketing agency based in Chicago that was uh, Rise Interactive. And so there was, there was kind of this, this moment of like, all right, that wasn't what we wanted it to be. It wasn't the success, you know, it wasn't the, the return on capital that, that I think I had hoped for, that other people had hoped for. It wasn't the outcome of my dreams, but at least kind of we found a good home and, and there was some value to that. And then, you know, about 50 weeks after that, I found myself uh, laid off from Rise. And at that point, totally unemployed, uh, go- going into the holidays. It was early December and, um, I, it was a total surprise to me. I, I, you know, called in and basically told, don't have a job anymore. Um, uh, the general counsel will follow you to your office so that you can pack a couple things into your backpack and then, you know, leave immediately. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't a terribly, um, it wasn't a terribly elegant exit. And, and after, after, a very difficult period of entrepreneurship. It then felt like a very, very difficult period of employment. Um, and I, I, I kind of found myself just sort of out there and, and just kind of spinning and, and not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life at that point in time. Got it. And this, I, again, this, I know this, but is this when you made your choice to go up to the top of the largest point <laughs> in the world? Or? It, it, is. <laughs> it is. So, so after, after um, you know, my, my time at Rise Interactive came to an end, I, I did some soul searching and, and I really started working on two things. So I realized that I was, I was in sort of a, a, a dark enough place that I didn't just want to go find another job. I needed to kind of figure myself out. I was, I was maybe having a midlife crisis at, you know, in, in my 30s, early 30s. And what I realized was that I had these other things in my life that I wanted to do. And, and so one of the, that, that I had really put on hold and not not really done 
you know, because I'd been putting everything I owned into the startup, all, all my time, all my energy, all my money, everything I had had gone into the startup company. And I realized that, you know, that was like five years of my life that had kind of been a blur that had sort of come to a, a, a crashing end and a frustrating end. I, I kind of decided that I wanted to go do some of those things in my life that I'd been putting off doing. And so I, I started writing a ton and I started trying to figure out how to write this book um, that eventually became Scale Your Everest. And then one of the goals that I'd had for, for years up until that point was eventually I wanted to climb Mount Everest. And so what, what I decided was in that, in that time, I said, well, I'm unemployed. I've got the opportunity to go spend time in the mountains. I'm never, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to have more freedom to train and to be ready to do it than I do right now. And I kind of said, all right, let's, let's go focus on that. And before I take another job, let's really focus on, you know, getting some of these other pursuits out of my system. So, so I started to focus a lot on writing and I started to focus a lot on climbing and preparing to go climb Mount Everest. So you climb Mount Everest, <laughs> which again, it's one of those things, almost like entrepreneurialism, right? Just like in, when you, you know, the book, everyone talks about it, like you can go do it, but it's not. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I remember I, you know, you had like a, uh, you had a blog or something because I remember reading your your progress as you were kind of posting. I don't know if it was Twitter or on on a uh, some like a yeah Facebook yeah that in a, in itself you you, know, you just talked about like this five years where you kind of had some dark moments but man was it two months you were working your way up that mountain <laughs> yeah ten weeks and and you know one of the one of the interesting kind of metaphors for life about climbing Mount Everest is it's not linear. You climb up and then you go back down and then you go up higher and then you come back down and you go up higher and then you go down even lower before you ultimately end up going and climbing the whole thing. And so, yeah, there were, and there were some, some really dark moments on Everest as well. Wow. Okay. And so you, so you had the, the, the idea of the, for the book before you went up the mountain, but I imagine in that 10 weeks, it's kind of really coming together for you. Is that, is that a fair way to frame that up? Well, I knew I wanted to write a book on entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and I, I, I knew that I'd had these experiences. P part of the reason I, I started writing the book was just catharsis. It was just sort of journaling, trying to get it out of my system. But the more that I wrote it and the more that I talked to entrepreneurs, I realized that my journey was not unique and it wasn't uniquely painful. It was actually more the norm. My experience, which had been so painful and debilitating and frustrating and just terrible in a lot of ways that I felt very unprepared for. And I felt like nobody had explained it to me. Like this is the normal journey that most entrepreneurs go through. And there really aren't books out there for what is the most likely outcome of being an entrepreneur. And so I felt very strongly like, number one, I needed to get this out of my system. But number two, there was a story in here that like I would sit down with entrepreneurs and, and similar to, to the conversation that you observed me having when I was in the thick of it, I would sit down with an entrepreneur and they would say, man, how did you deal with it? Because this is so hard and I'm really struggling with what I'm going through. And it was like, man, I just wanted to talk to him for 20 hours about all the lessons I learned and my anecdotes and what I'd gone through and what I experienced and, and the, you know, how I might be able to, to hopefully add some context and maybe help them so that they could contextualize the journey a little bit better than I was able to. So anyway, that's, that's a really long way of saying I wanted to get that into the book. I wanted to turn that into a book because I wanted to be able to scale that conversation in a way that, that you know, I, I couldn't do otherwise. What ultimately ended up happening is I realized while climbing Mount, while preparing for and then climbing Mount Everest, what I noticed was a lot of better athletes than me failed to make it up Mount Everest while I was there with them. And so I'm looking at all these guys who are better climbers, who are better athletes, who are just in better shape. And a lot of them failed to make it to the top where I succeeded, not because I was physically stronger or better prepared, but because of a lot of these mental lessons and psychological lessons and psychological resilience that I had learned through processing the entrepreneurial experience. And, and what I, what I kind of realized, what all came full circle is that being prepared for the psychological side, the mental side, the emotional side, if, if you're going to go take a non-traditional path, if you're going to go dare greatly, right? In the words of, of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, if you want to be, you know, if you don't want to be one of those uh, cold and timid souls that knows neither defeat nor victory, if you want to be one of those men in the arena, then 
there's going to be the hardship. There's going to be the challenge that comes along with it. That's part of the experience. That's part of the reason for doing it. And and so, so that element, that challenge is the critical part of the journey, but there are a lot of lessons that we can learn in order to be resilient to those challenges. And that's, that's ultimately how the mountaineering side and the, the Mount Everest side and the entrepreneurial side kind of came together. And what happened is, you know, Everest became a really interesting source of context and a really interesting metaphor for what is ultimately a book about mental resilience for entrepreneurships for entrepreneurs. Wow. Yeah. And in the book, I mean, so the book's not out yet, but it's going to be out soon. Correct. That's correct. May 11th, I believe is, is the current publication date. Got it. And you've already hit on a lot of the like kind of context of the book and kind of summarized it about that mental resilience and, and, and how you've kind of blended research and, and antidotes in, into it. Is the book something that you could say someone who's going through their career might want to read it, not just an entrepreneur, because a lot of that mental resilience makes you successful in a lot of paths. Entrepreneurism is just one that has extra difficulty because there's a lot of unpaved path or there's a lot more kind of up and back, up and back maybe, but there's still a lot that you have, that mental resilience could go a long way and even further than what might be, you know, considered athleticism within a profession in terms of intellect or experience, right? Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. When I was, when I was writing the book, one of the interesting lessons that I learned is, is I was, I'm, I'm writing this book and I'm consumed and doing all of this research around how mentally challenging entrepreneurship is. And, and there's all kinds of great papers on this topic. And, and so I'm very myopic about this, right? And, and then I started speaking to different audiences. And actually, when I was back at Chapel Hill at North Carolina, I was speaking to an audience and a young lady who was in the PhD program came up to me and said, you know, Eric, the stuff that you talk about with entrepreneurs is exactly the same as what PhD students face. It's a slightly different context. You know, I've, I've, I've had single mothers who have read the book. So at its heart, all of the lessons that are in there, I believe, are timeless lessons for human beings that are trying to figure out how to get outside of their comfort zone, go take the road less traveled, go dare greatly, and go try to achieve something, or, or, or and, and you know, how to be more resilient to the challenges as they're facing them. That certainly sounds like an excellent, I've not read it, unfortunately. Um, I've read some of the summaries and stuff like that, but I'm definitely looking forward to it because I, I certainly, I love to read and, you know, but I, I definitely would love to read it because I think sharing it with people in those, maybe not necessarily the entrepreneurial context and helping them through um, whatever they're dealing with is, will be, will be great. So, okay. But like, if you, would you say that there was any form of characteristics, like if if you're talking to like a 20 something year old and they're trying to decide, you know, maybe not even to start their own company, but go into a startup type of environment versus go pursue the, you know, multi-billion dollar, 50 year old company or something like that. What would you say are some of the things they might want to think about? Like, what are the characteristics of one versus the other and how they might want to match themselves up to it? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in the truism that I probably would have hated when I was in my 20s, but now that I'm in my 30s, uh, I can say that I'm a big believer. There's this truism that in your 20s, you're there to learn, mm. and then in your 30s, you're there to earn. Yeah. And I, I like to believe that I'm a lifelong learner, right? So so hopefully that never completely goes away. So it can be really easy to get focused on what will in retrospect be small differences. What I think is far more important is that self-assessment of where is it, who who do you want to be and what skills do you need? Both hard skills as well as soft skills. What are the skills that you need in order to get where you want to get to? And how can you use the early part of your career to round out your skills as well as develop and cultivate mentors and advisors who will then be the people that will be critical later on in your journey um, to, to helping you around your career. For someone, you know, you think about a younger person 
um, you know, the idea of a mentor can be tricky, right? Do you have, would you say there's any kind of singular advice around, you know, not just getting, you know, finding good mentors is, is very important, but like, what, you know, what, what do you think you'd say to them? Like, make sure you understand this about having a good relationship with a mentor. Yeah. It's, it's two things. Number one, find people that you click with, that you find yourself wanting to be around be, be, because, you know, that's something that can't be faked. And you want, I have found the only mentors in my life that are really successful and I've got a number of them, but they are people that I genuinely get excited to talk to. And I just genuinely want to be around. The other piece of advice is I think when you're early in your career, it can feel really strange. The idea that people are willing to give you their time, energy, advice, and want nothing in return. And that can also, that can almost be intimidating for people early in their career to go ask for advice when they, when they may not feel like they have anything to give to the mentor. And I think it leads oftentimes to people not following up and not being consistent in terms of maintaining the relationship in a way that is a real shame. And what you, what you realize as you become older is, you know, you don't mentor and advise people because you expect to get something back from them. You do it because you want to pay back the people that invested in your career. That's awesome. And I think that's so true because, you know, again, personally, as I get to my, you know, as I'm in my kind of mid-career moment as well, like I try to really think about that, right? I had so much, especially early on, like some great mentors. And at this point, you know, how do I, you know, kind of almost celebrate how much I got out of those relationships? So that's, that's good. So you've talked about some tough moments. Do you want, can you give me, you know, maybe one really particularly tough moment in your career that was kind of decision related? Like, yeah, the one that immediately comes to mind is there was a point at the very end of Simple Relevance where friends and family and the people who had been the first ones to invest in the company, and, and, you know, they they weren't investing because they were doing a rational, you know, discounted cash flow analysis of the prospects of the business. They were doing it because they'd known me for a long time and, and they trusted and believed in me. They they were looking to put more money in to try to help me keep things afloat. I had to decide whether I thought that it was responsible to take the money that they were giving me or whether I needed to say thanks but at this point, like, I'm afraid we're putting good money after bad. And it was a really hard thing to go through because on the one hand, you know, what, what everybody says about entrepreneurship, you know, what everybody says is like, go all in, hustle harder. Ultimately, I, I declined to take the money. It was, it was a really, really hard decision because I couldn't even contemplate the idea of failing. And like, we were on the path to failure. And I, there, it was an incredibly difficult thing for me to confront psychologically. Looking back on it, it's something that I'm, I'm actually proud of because it wasn't easy to do. It wasn't easy to say, like the easy thing to do would have been to have kept digging deeper. And, and you know, who knows? I, there's, there's, you know, somewhere out there, there's a 1% chance that, that had I done that, you know, we might have been able to get things to click back into place and, and maybe we, we could have ended up turning it into a, an amazing success story. And I could have been, you know, one of those one of those stories you see on, on TV or whatever. I didn't think it was a responsible course of action. Um, but looking back on it, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that I had the the willingness to say, no, enough is enough. This would not be the right decision yeah. to make. Let's let's wow. call it quits. Wow. All right. So um, that you know, kind of is a, is a good kind of setup for one of my favorite questions here. And maybe again, cause I'm, I'm a little bit of a back to the future nerd. Um, but if you could, you know, jump in the DeLorean, go back and have your conversation. And I know you talked about going to the 15 year old self, but maybe go back to kind of 20, 21, 22, 23, somewhere in there, year old Eric, what do you think is one or two things that you'd want to make sure you say and, and say, Hey man, this is, this, I want you to hear this. If I had five minutes, 
to talk to my 23-year-old self, the thing that I would want to get across is figure out how to get off the treadmill and find more balance in your life. It's great to work hard. It's great to achieve. It's, it's great to compete. It's fun to win. All of those things are fantastic. They are tools in the toolbox that need to be leveraged. But for all of the, and that's always been a natural motion. Working harder than everybody else has always been a natural thing for me to do. But for all of that, recognize that the achievements that you think you're going after, let me tell you, when, after you're on the cover of a magazine, you don't wake up feeling any different the next day. And after you put you know, certain checks in the bank, you don't wake up feeling any better the next day. And, and the only way that you get to some personal satisfaction and contentment and peace in life is by learning how to balance some of that type A need to overachieve, compete, and win with learning what for me was a much more difficult skill to learn, which was how to find peace, how to find balance, how to find stillness, how to find quiet, how to find joy, contentment, presence, like all, all of those, um, you know, the yen to go with the yang, uh, figuring out how to find that balance. If I could go do, if I could have, if I could have embarked on learning about that earlier in my life, I think I would have been much happier, much earlier in my existence. And I think that it would have led to a more efficient and ultimately even more successful career. I, I think that I, I had this anxiety that was driving overachievement that I thought was a superpower. And what I had to learn was how to control that anxiety, how to control and harness that need to achieve so that I was intentional about it instead of letting it drive me. And once I found that, so much of everything else started to really fall into place. Yeah. Wow. And, it, you know, Eric, there's so many people I've, I've, you know, been able to talk to on this show and just in my own life. It is fascinating how people, when they get to our age, that's one of the most important things they talk about, right? Find, and you said it so eloquently, but like finding this balance in your life and how kind of separating the, yeah, I got to be successful, but there's so much more in life than just being successful in a job, right? So that's, that is a very important kind of uh, message and lesson there for sure. All right. Well, hey, Eric, man, we've, we've spent a lot of time here. I appreciate it. Do you have anything else you think you'd want? I mean, is there anything we didn't hit on or is there anything else you'd want to say before we wrap up? No, this was a blast, man. I, I appreciate the opportunity and it's, it's been a ton of fun to reconnect with you. And, uh, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation. Yeah, man. It's a great story. You got a great story and I, and I can't wait to get it out for people. And, and, and not only do I hope they get a get, get tremendous value out of the podcast, but I hope they check out your book, scale your Everest, which should be out. You said early mid May. Yeah. Mid May. I think May 11th right now is the plan. Got, got it. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you.